Hello, and welcome to another episode of Right Care Baptist. I'm Jake Lancaster, an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. And I'm Amanda Comer. I'm a nurse practitioner and the system director for advanced practice providers. And we're real excited to have on Dr. Blake Daniels to talk about transfusion medicine. Dr. Daniels, welcome to the program. Hey, guys, thanks for having me today. Uh, Like you said, I'm Blake Daniels. I'm one of the anesthesiologists here at Baptist. Well, we're, we're really excited to talk about this topic. It's been a hot topic in our system for some time. Uh, but before we jump in, can you just tell the audience a little bit of your background and, and what you do for Baptist? Right. So like I said, I'm one of the anesthesiologists here. My background um, for the hospital and what uh, I've done in the past is uh, background in trauma anesthesia. In addition to, we've created a blood conservation protocol here to reduce some of the blood utilization in the Baptist system. Uh, that's been implemented at the beginning of the year and has been successful this far, and we're uh, continuing to work on that process. So let's just start off with the the basics. Um, Why are we trying to conserve blood? Why is it important to to focus on this topic? So there's a number of reasons uh, I think why it's important. One of the biggest reasons that I noticed immediately when I came here to Baptist, which wasn't too long ago, it was a year and a half ago, was that especially in our surgical case, uh, cases, uh, is that our blood, we were transfusion uh, way too many products inappropriately. I think what we were seeing is that we would have a patient who has a bleed uh, that has a, starting out at a normal hemoglobin, has a blood loss of maybe 500 mLs in the OR, uh, and then we are reactionary sometimes and we jump because we see this massive blood loss or presumed massive blood loss and we immediately jump uh, to transfusing products. And I saw this over and over again. And I was like, hey, we need to come up with uh, some type of guideline, some type of policy or some type of structure so that we can guide how we're transfusing products. Um, So the importance of it, I think, is one is that we are doing appropriate transfusion because we know that there's a shortage of blood uh, that's available and so that we can conserve that blood for the patients that actually need it. Uh, Two, another thing that I really want to do is that giving blood is not a a fail-proof process that uh, there are risks associated with giving blood we know, such as trolley and taco, and you can get transfusion reactions that are associated with those uh, when you're unnecessarily expect uh, transfusing blood. Uh, And then also, too, from a cost-saving standpoint from the hospital as well, too, is if we could reduce the amount of products that we're giving, uh, the goal would be is that we could reduce uh, some of the uh, cost burden of the hospital as well. Very interesting. So you talked about the massive transfusion or the blood conservation protocol. Talk to me a little bit about the committee, how it was formed and how this work evolved. Got you. So uh, I believe that we started the transfusion committee, a system-wide transfusion committee back January 1st of this year. So we're uh, almost through a year of having the transfusion committee here at the hospital. Uh, and everybody that sits on the committee is uh, the CMO, Dr. Cloud, and everybody that's high uh, high stakeholders um, that are involved in blood uh, utilization of the hospital. Some of the surgeons, some of the anesthesiologists, uh, some of the uh, administrators in the hospital as well, too. And we saw that there was a need uh, after we brought in Vizient, who's one of the consulting groups here, that on average we're transfusing two more products um, per patient that need to be or we're over transfusing basically two products more than what we need to transfuse. And we looked at data all the way back to, I believe it was 2010 or around that area. And we looked at, is this even possible? Can we get this number down to something where it was before? Has it ever been lower? 
And we found a time period between 2013, 2014, where we actually had it uh, pretty matched evenly where the transfusion ratio should be. And they guided that on uh, pre-op transfusion or pre-op hemoglobin level, um, blood loss during the hospital, and they had this fancy algorithm for it, and then post-op discharge hemoglobin level, and what they needed to be discharged on that would be acceptable without any risk being uh, occurring to the patient. Uh, and on average, we're over transfusing patients two units. Um, so even just reducing uh, an estimated cost for just for the hospital that they estimate is if we could reduce that uh, blood utilization just in our hospital, just here at Maine, not any other uh, hospitals in the system, by 10%, we could save a million dollars a year just by doing that. So when we first brought the, the uh, consulting group in, Vizient, you know, that was flashing lights for the hospital. This would be a great opportunity for, you know, cost uh, savings for the hospital. No, yeah, that's a, it's a pretty sizable number. Um, early on, you also mentioned complications related to blood transfusion, uh, such as trolley and taco and transfusion reactions. You mind just walking through the audience what those are and maybe how frequent they are? Right. Um, so these are two um, processes that you can see anytime you give any pl uh, blood products. More commonly, they're uh, associated when you're giving FFP, um, which is in if you're giving correct ratios of blood products, um, you will typically give FFP when you're giving any pack sales. Okay. Um, so basically, uh, what we see is uh, transfusion-related reactions with trolley and taco. Uh, as you see, um, or there's also some other minor uh, issues that you can see with inf uh, infusions as well, too. But with trolley, what you can see is basically an inflammatory reaction in response to uh, antigens that are associated with um, uh, the blood products. In addition to taco is basically, these are very superficial uh, overviews that yeah. I'm giving because we're all, I think so, this is our right. target audience is physicians, so I'm not going to go into the nitty gritty of it. Well, uh, maybe like, just for, for some of us that don't transfuse as much, just uh, explain the acronym. So trolley, transfusion related uh, acute lung injury. Exactly. So in taco is uh, transfusion associate, associated uh, circulatory overload. All right. Uh, so these are the two big major transfusion related actions that we worry about anytime we're transfusing products. Uh, and so this was one of my main reasons why I wanted to make sure that if we're doing unnecessary transfusions, uh, that we can try to avoid transfusion if at all possible. And I think in a lot of cases that I re I've reviewed and that we talked about with the consulting group uh, is that in certain situations, certain patients didn't even need to be transfused. Um, and to caveat on that, too, I think that it has to be a culture change, not just with our surgical patients, but a hospital-wide association to be comfortable enough to realize that, hey, maybe this patient doesn't, even if you see an acute blood loss, maybe we shouldn't be quick to jump to transfusion, and maybe we should follow hemoglobins and see if we, there's other things we can correct before transfusing products. And this is excluding any type of blunt force trauma-related patients, uh, an acute, you know, bleed, a GI bleed where the patient's actively hemorrhaging. Um, but other cases where the patient's bleeding, and even if you see a surgical blood loss or the patient's bleeding on the floor, I think sometimes we're a little bit too reactionary and that we can maybe just take a step back and look at the overall picture. 
Interesting. That that's very good. So not only cost savings, but also a benefit to the patients or an avoidance right. of those possible um, interactions. But talk to me a little bit about you. You said maybe we should wait a little bit and look at the clinical picture and really monitor those hemoglobins. How? What did? What are strategies do you use to watch and wait? Or so the thing. So I typically see uh, surgical patients. Um, but we can talk about the floor patients and the surgical patients. So I think from the floor standpoint, I think even if the patient has a hemoglobin of 6.9 or 6.8 and that patient is stable um, and that patient has no signs of active bleeding uh, and the patient has no hemodynamic shifts, I think that that patient has isn't appropriate enough to not even transfuse um, because some patients may live at a lower uh a lower hemoglobin level because they have end-stage renal disease or for some other reason. Uh, and maybe those patients we watch and wait to see if there's any hemoglobin drop before we transfuse. And even with our surgical patients, even if they come back post-op and say the hemoglobin is seven, I've seen certain physicians say, hey, I always want to treat at less than eight. I think that we have to know that the hemoglobin transfusion goes, you know, it's been a long time since they've been less than eight and transfused. Uh, it's pretty standard practice now that's less than seven, uh, you're going to transfuse a patient. Uh, and even in our surgical patients, if you see a patient starting out with a normal hemoglobin level, and even if they have um, uh, a acute blood loss of even 500 cc's, which looks a lot, which would scare all of us if I saw 500, you know, cc's of blood loss acutely, like, you know, you get scared and you're like, oh, I think I need to transfuse. But there are things called uh, allowable blood loss. Uh, where you can calculate what needs to, what can you lose and you still be in appropriate hemoglobin levels. So you basically, you have a target hemoglobin that you don't want to go below, and then you can calculate how much blood loss you can go before you start needed, needing to transfuse. So what are some, other than just watching and waiting, are there other drugs that you can give like iron or something like that to try to increase the, the hemoglobin without giving blood? Right. So uh, as another one of the hats that I wear for the hospital is uh, Dr. McCullough and myself, we uh, run a new pre-optimization clinic. Uh, and so for our outpatient surgical patients, what we're looking at is um, preoperative iron transfusions uh, so that we can avoid things like transfusing. We haven't set up the process um, yet because there's still some insurance issues with it. Um, but the goal would be to start transfusion um, patients who have uh, low hemoglobin levels uh, with iron, iron infusions uh, three to four weeks prior to their surgical date. And having those patients come back in to see if we can have any increase uh, in their hemoglobin levels. And other hospitals that have utilized this, that do have pre-op clinics, have shown benefit and shown that they have been a, uh, to reduce the amount of transfusions that they give for uh, elective outpatient surgical cases. That's great. So are there any specific patient populations or medical conditions um, that would benefit for a transfusion and instead of that, that waiting? So I think that the patients who come in with Jehovah Witness uh, who have um, low hemoglobin levels um, that you already want to uh, avoid blood products, most of them will accept iron transfusions. Other ones are sickle cell patients, any patient with uh, end-stage renal disease. These are the target populations that you want to try to maybe give an iron transfusion for. Even women with um, that, that may have uh, um, heavy menstrual cycles that may have uh, dysmenorrhea or issues with uh, bleeding uh, that 
typically range from or have lower hemoglobin levels. Um, these are the kind of patients that I would want to maybe get in the clinic a little bit earlier and try to see if we could get those uh, hemoglobin levels up prior to surgery. And Jake, I don't have it in front of me now. The other question you said about other products that we use, uh, I actually, uh, this was probably a couple of months ago, reached out to pharmacy and I don't have the list right here in front of me, but there's a list of for especially for Jehovah Witness patients, there's a list of medications that we have on formulary that we can use uh, in substitute of blood products if needed um, for our patients as well. Very nice. So, I, you know, recently, or I guess until this recent article came out, there was um, some differences in opinion on transfusion uh, thresholds for patients that had uh, coronary artery disease or who was coming in for an AMI and had different hemoglobin levels. There's a recent study, I think, that came out. I don't know if you saw the one in the New England Journal related to it. Um, but are, do you all, as that committee, think about um, those patients differently when it comes to transfusion goals? So we've talked about those goals uh, before, and I brought that up, that uh, even in the data that Vizient looked at, um, the hemoglobin threshold probably for a cardiac vascular patient probably needs to be a little bit higher because they need a higher uh, oxygen carrying capacity. The data on that is, the literature on that can be kind of all over the place sometimes about what is the actual uh, target for the, these patients. Some will say above eight, some will say above nine. Um, so we haven't specifically addressed that yet. Um, but in different populations, you will have different target hemoglobin levels. The suggested recommend anytime you do a sickle cell patient most times is above 10 uh, for most cases as well too. And really? we don't always transfuse a, a sickle cell patient. SS hemoglobin should be above 10 um, for any like major vascular procedure um, because we also worry about um, them that causing a crisis as well. Yeah. And so you know, we, we've talked a little bit about surgical blood management, um, you know, your typical floor patient. Now we've talked about um, cardiac patients uh, and sickle cell. Uh, what about the patient that comes in with a massive trauma? Ta take us through your thought process for, for those patients. Okay, so see, these are some of my uh, favorite cases to do because it's a lot to do. You get an adrenaline rush from them. Um, so the biggest thing you want to do is if we were to a ever able to have a uh, trauma here, and sometimes, you know, the med is on diversion, and if they're on diversion, it could be possible that we get a trauma here, um, is that you want to be vigilant and know when to activate an MTP, okay? There are certain criteria, the criteria- and MTP is massive transfusion protocol? Uh, yeah, exactly, massive transfusion protocol. So if we were to have a MTP, a massive transfusion protocol, when to know when to activate this. Uh, so if the patient comes in stable, um, there's no vital sign changes, there's, the patient looks okay, you do not need to order an MTP. Um, but most traumas, what you think about when you're gonna activate an MTP is one, the patient comes in unstable, systolic blood pressure under 90, um, blunt force trauma or penetrating trauma, uh, in addition to active or visible hemorrhaging and positive fast exam in the trauma bay. Those are automatic, activate MTP, go to the OR, try to get blood products as fast as you can. So last year, last year, early this year, Dr. Golombeski, he's the chairman of pathology, 
uh, he saw that there were some issues in the uh, massive transfusion protocol that we currently had in place. There were too many stops in the system for getting blood. And when you have a true trauma, the thing that you need to do is get blood in as fast as you can. Uh, if you don't have the, you activate the MTP. Sorry, let me back up. Activate the MTP. If you can't get cross type specific blood, you can always get red type to start out. And then what you can do is order a typing screen during the midst of the trauma uh, so that you can transition to type specific blood. OK, uh, and so the first MTP or the uh, the ratios are already pre-proportioned out for our MTP here. Um, so you'll get four of pack cells and four of yellow to start to start out. So four red cells, four of FFP. Uh, your next container will co contain four pack cells, four of FFP one of platelet and one of cryo and that gets you about oh i was just going to ask why is it important to have those ratios like you you stated right so the goal is is that you don't want to transfuse um, what you can get in trouble is is if you only transfusion red cells because you see the patient bleed is that you get concerned about for things uh, such as a dilutional coagulopathy uh, and so the patient doesn't have the clotting factors necessary even though that you're providing red cells uh, to prevent uh, any further bleeding. So this is what we're trying to pre uh, prevent. And so this is why we think it's important uh, to do everything in the correct ratios. Um, in addition to that, Jake and Amanda, is that we recently, uh, the hospital approved for us to get Quantra, which is a vasoelastic testing uh, that we'll have in the ORs down here. Uh, it's if I don't know if anybody uh, on the podcast is familiar with uh, TEGS, it's called thromboelastic. Yeah. Uh, so basically, this is what Quantra is. It's a point of care TEG that we'll have available to us in the OR in the next couple of months, where if we were to have a trauma, this system would basically, it takes the patient's blood sample. It, see, it sees how long it uh, takes for the sample. Um, this is very in sim simplistic terms, how uh, long it takes the sample to clot, how strong that clot is, and how uh, long it takes that clot to break down. And so from those, uh, and it'll give you a, a pictogram of basically a TEG curve in addition, or uh, curve in addition to numbers uh, and it'll tell you uh, for that patient do we need platelets for this patient do we need ffp for this patient do we need cryo and it tells you in the most scientific way what blood products you need even more than the correct ratio oh, that sounds fancy yeah it does it really yeah. does uh, so we're excited to have that. I think another hospital that I'm trying to also push for it is at our women's hospital, um, because uh, a lot of the time, some of the patients that we see in OV, OB uh, suffer from maternal hemorrhage, which is the number one cause of fetal maternal death worldwide. Not so much in the U.S. anymore because we have a little bit better access to blood products, um, but it still is a major concern that we see over at the women's hospital. Um, and if we had that property there, what I'd able to see sometimes is I'll send a uh, fibrinogen down to the lab. It takes a while for it to come back. Once I get it, I'll see that the fibrinogen is 150, which may not be bad for us on the call, but for a pregnant person who should have a higher fibrinogen level, um, I would know immediately, hey, we need to give some other blood products, probably cryo that has a little bit higher fibrinogen level in it to get those levels up. Well, well, Blake, I know I've, I've learned a lot through this conversation. Um, still a lot to learn um right. for me uh you know I, I think we do have a lot of opportunity and try to 
try to really tailor our blood utilization to the you know the correct proportions. Um, but where what are the kind of the next steps for your committee? Uh, where do you see this going? Uh, so the next steps that we've talked about are how do we reduce hospital wide uh, transfusion of blood and blood products? How do we actually implement this? Uh, and so one of the things we've discussed is basically having um, a de-identified system where we could have physicians review cases and say, hey, on this case-by-case situation, what would your management be? And then giving them feedback on cases that we thought that blood products were overutilized uh, so that they can kind not to say, hey, we're going to guide and tell you exactly how to manage patients, but see that like, hey, potentially this could have been managed differently. Um, because I think it's hard to tell a physician don't manage a patient a certain way. Yeah. Um, so I think that's one of the biggest things that we're working on now is how do we implement this on the surgical side? We've already created, and I haven't talked about this, but um, I talked about it with you guys previously before we jumped on, but a maximum surgical blood ordering schedule. It's uh, MSBOS. Uh, a lot of academic institutions have it, but it's case specific. Um, ordering of blood products. So does this case even need a type and screen? If the case needs a type and screen, then we order a type and screen and even down to how many units are ordered. And this is based off the uh, hospital specific. So this wouldn't really transfer to the hospitals downtown or anything like that. This is based off the surgeons that work here, um, case by case. And if those blood products are needed, um, then we can order those for the case. Because what we've also seen is if I type and screen or type and cross everybody for four units, most likely if we have a blood loss in the OR or even on the floor, those blood products are going to be given. Um, and we want to make sure that we're being judicious with our uh, blood alloc allocation to patients. Uh, that makes perfect sense. So based on the type of case in the hospital, you would say this is the typical number of units that you would expect to be given. Exactly. Yeah, no, uh, it sounds like great plans. And, and thanks again. I know I learned a lot. And thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of Right Care at Baptist. Remember, if you follow the link in the show notes, you can redeem this episode for CME credit. Thanks for having me, Jake and Amanda. Thanks for coming.